0: Welcome to Pointed Questions. My name is Brent Schweinbach. With me is Donnie Devanian. Our guest today is art detective Bernard Uwell. We will be talking to him about Salvador Dali and the world of fake art on this episode of Pointed Questions. How much fake art is out there? (laughs)
1: How how much coronavirus is out there? You know, both are invisible, very, very difficult to determine Mm -hmm. until they hit and hurt someone. It's quite a lot. Uh, Thomas Hoving, when he was the director of the Metropolitan Museum, estimated that of all the artworks that were offered to him, either for purchase by the museum or for donation by the donors, he found that about 40% of them were fake. When he said that, I was a little bit startled, but that was some years ago. I've been following it ever since, and I think he was probably pretty close. I've also seen that, uh, that estimate or estimates in that range um, come from other sources.
0: So nearly half of the art that's out there circulating and being sold and purchased is not authentic.
1: Well, there's, of course, no way to really, uh, to really to really pin that down. But uh, quite a lot of it is in my practice, which, as you know, really focuses on the art of Salvador Dali. Um, I have done over 57,000 Dali prints, and I estimate that 60% of those were fake.
0: How do you figure out when something's fake?
1: There's a very big question, and it takes 48 years of experience to answer it. Essentially as you know I call myself an art detective and I do that because when I examine an artwork or I receive a photograph of a print which I can do without actually seeing it and I look at all the various factors all the things that I would look for if I was examining it, uh, it's the artwork itself that really has to convince me it's real. Not the signature but the artwork itself. And with the most extensive files of anybody in the world for Dali prints, I always have files I can go to that might have a a copy of the copyright application. It might have a copy of the contract for doing the print. It certainly will have my notes on having done research for this particular image many, many times before. Now, if I'm looking at a unique piece and they have to come to me, if I'm looking at a painting, a print, a sculpture, again, all the clues are there. I'm looking at the materials. Uh, stylistic analysis is very, very important because I have to be convinced this actually is from the hand of the artist. And that opens up a whole region of fakes that are called pastiches in which the faker will use images from legitimate artworks in the new illegitimate artwork. And, you know, we're so supposed to look at that and say, oh, yeah, That's a work by him. If there's a blue cow floating over a church, you're going to look at it and say, oh, this must be a Chagall. If there's a melted watch, you're going to look at it and say, oh, this must be a Dali. So the stylistic analysis is very important.
0: Have you ever been fooled?
1: That's really interesting. I am asked that in just about every interview. And as far as I know, I have never been wrong. Nobody has ever come back and said, uh your report is wrong in court i've never been proved wrong uh so as far as i know even with this vast number of pieces i've done in 48 years no i have not been and
0: similarly you haven't um deemed something fake when it was in fact real
1: i've not been aware of that as, of that either mm-hmm. it's just a matter of doing so much that um You really do know. And of course, there was a a book published in the last couple of years called Blink. And that was about the uh, phenomenon of an art expert looking at a painting and knowing immediately that it's good or it's bad, and then having to examine it and look for all the clues that almost invariably bring the art expert back to that initial response. And that initial response is not so unique, of course. I say everyone does that. Bird watchers do it. Bird flips across the road in front of them. And they instantly know, oh, that's a northern flicker. And someone who's not a bird watcher says, how could you possibly know that? And then they go back and they say, well, let me see. It was a fairly large bird, at least the size of a robin. It had a a flight pattern. It was very distinctive for a flicker. And I saw a little flash of red... All of these are clues that your brain sees immediately. And with all of that experience goes through the process and comes up with an answer that something's wrong here.
0: Are you able to do that?
1: Oh, absolutely. So you can look at something, five seconds
0: or less and determine if it's fake or not.
1: The initial response is something that is really, really critical. Again, uh, quoting Thomas Hoving, he said that when he was being a fake buster, uh, he would write down his very first response to an artwork. And then when he had done his job, he would come back and he almost always felt exactly the same thing.
2: Hmm. Uh, when you're, when you're shown a piece of artwork for the first time, do you like get ready to see it or do you want it surprised upon you? Or does it even matter?
1: Well, I'm not sure what you mean by get ready to see it. Well, like, let's
2: say like someone's like, okay, we're going to bring in this painting and we got to see if this is fake or not. And you're like, okay, just bring it into the front door, set it down. I'm going to have a cup of tea and I'm going to go right there and see it for the first time and record what I see.
1: Uh, good point. I th- I think that's well, that's well laid out. Uh, that essentially is what I would like to do. Um, I recently in Southern California saw a painting, a very, very important painting that has been uh, extensively questioned. And I didn't want to peek at it the night before. I didn't want, I just wanted to face it and have all the time necessary to really examine it front, back, all the materials, uh, the style, everything about it. So I don't really need any sort of uh, preparation or background to see an artwork. The artwork has all the answers.
0: Because you are so familiar with fakes and real art, of course, do you feel like you're capable at this point of creating fake art and having it pass off as real?
1: I have no idea. I, I've never tried to do that. Mm-hmm. Lots of people have said, Bernard, you know more than Sal- about Salvador Dali than anybody else you could do the fakes. And best of all, they wouldn't have you to testify against you. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, theoretically that's possible, but But I've never made the attempt.
0: Do you think that if you did make that attempt and created a fake dolly, for example, do you think other art busters or art detectives would be able to figure it out? Or do you think that because it's being created by an art detective or an art buster that you'd be able to even... Trick the uh, the other ones.
1: Well, if I was trying to do a Salvador Dali, no, I don't think there's anybody who would catch me. Oh, that's Another really artist, probably so.
0: Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, and the thought never crossed your mind? I could make I could make a fake Dali and just hang it up in my my place, you know, for fun.
1: Well, that question has been asked to me by every defense attorney and every federal prosecution of which I've served as the chief expert witness, and I have simply said. Theoretically, I guess that could be done, but that absolutely is not who I am. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely not what I do, and it's absolutely not something that I have an interest in doing. So do you, it, would, it would remain a theoretical question.
0: Do you, um, do you at all admire fake art and the, the craftsmanship that goes into making it look real, even though it's fake?
1: Oh, to an extent. But of course, fakes uh, come in in all grades. So there are a lot of pieces I look at and I just kind of laugh or sm- sneer and say they shouldn't even have tried this. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are some very, very good fakes that I can look at and say, well, they did pretty well with this figure or that figure. Or I think the uh, the watercolor wash is well handled. But uh, my admiration doesn't last long. Um, I certainly have known a number of forgers. I certainly have faced a number of forgers uh, in court and in depositions, and uh, they've had varying degrees of of expertise and techniques. Uh, There was one assignment that I did in South Florida. I was brought in by two men who were thinking about buying a collection, and the collection was a varied, varied uh, collection of most of the big names of uh, the 20th century and certainly the school of Paris. So there were some, uh, <clears throat> some Calders representing American art. There were uh, Paul Clay's, there were Modigliani's. All the artworks in this collection were watercolors or drawings of one kind or another, but a wide range of probably around 40 artists and every single one of them looked good, but every single one also disturbed me a little bit. So of course I examined each one, I took photographs, I made notes of my responses, went away, did my my, uh, research and wrote up a long extensive report. My reports are always extensive. I escort my reader to my conclusions. And in this report, I wrote that I believed that every single artwork in that collection was a fake. And it was my opinion that every single one of them had been created by the man who owned the collection, and in whose home I had done the examination. And with something like that, you don't know for sure whether you're right until they never question you, they never blow back. Uh, In court, if I do something like that, and there's absolutely no cross-examination question, then I know I was correct about it. In this case, I really felt that the man who was an artist, and I saw his studio and I saw some of his work, was very, very good at copying a wide range of styles. And so I had some uh, grudging admiration for that, the Mm -hmm. fact that he could do so many and come so close to being convincing.
0: What are some... Tells that when you just sort of laugh at something, you you know what are some elements that make you do that?
1: Well, I would I would guess that in general um, that falls into a couple of categories. One would be copies or reproductions of legitimate artworks that I know, and I might say, oh no, that painting's in the reign of Sophia. I've seen it there. This is a copy of that. Um, the other thing that uh, th- that I would say is that whoever has done the fake just hasn't understood what the artist would be trying to do. And an example of that that I used recently is a painting was brought into my office. My staff set it up in the examination room. Um, I needed to walk through the examination room to go take care of a little task before I could be available to my clients. And as I walked through the room and, and, and said hello to them, I glanced at the easel and saw a portrait that appeared to be by Picasso by Pablo Picasso, and it looked like it was one of the uh the portraits of Jacqueline one of his uh his uh mistresses and, and one of his wives as a matter of fact, but it wasn't right it just wasn't right, so I went and took care of my little piece of business, came back, stood in front of the painting, and I knew right then what was wrong with it. Whoever had done it had done a Cubist painting in the style of Picasso, but didn't have a good enough understanding of Cubism to really pull it off. And so that, that, that's always a giveaway that, uh, Oh, they're trying to do something, but they don't really understand what they're doing.
0: So you have to understand the just the really precise nuances of different styles and well, signature, uh, signature techniques of these different artists and how do you become, I, I know you mentioned 48 years. How do you, how, even in those 48 years, how do you become so familiar with these very slight nuances of these artists?
1: Well, well, let's be clear. I can't do that with all artists. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't just do the ones that with specialize. most artists. Yeah. I can't do that with a lot of artists, but if I have seen a number of works by an artist, My brain is going to do that calculation. It's going to say, there's something off here. There's something you haven't seen before. Check it out and find out what the answer is. With Dolly, of course, the answer is, I've done a couple of thousand Dolly uniques. I've appraised the collection of the Dolly Museum. I've seen lots and lots of collections that nobody knows exists and nobody else has seen. So it's just the volume of the material I've seen. And one of the things I will, uh, I mentioned uh, a bird watcher. It's because he's just seen a flicker so many times that he picked up the clues. If you're a mechanic and uh, someone drives an automobile into your shop, you may very well know something about how the engine is running just because of what you're hearing. So it's obvious that you need a lot of experience to do that. Um, Sometimes when I'm not sure about something, the research will show me. I might come across the original of which this is a copy. Or I might come across an original finished painting, for instance, or watercolor, of which this is supposed to be a preliminary drawing. And comparing the work of the artist, the actual work of the artist, with the work of someone else trying to look as if they were the artist working up an idea, I'll see the differences. Okay, when you look at the Picasso with the
2: Cubism, how do you know he's not taking a cha straying from normal cubism and just trying to reinvent something and makes it a little bit different and you see that and you're like oh that's definitely a fake but maybe picasso is just trying something out not
1: possible. very good question because the best artists tend to be experimental now i don't mean that to sound as if that's uh something flippant um <clears throat> what i mean by that is they use the scientific method. They are exploring all the time. They're always trying something new. They're trying slight, uh, slight changes. Um, I was explaining this to my cousin, uh, James Watson, who got the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA. And I was telling him how I use the scientific method in looking at art. I look at something, and I have an immediate uh, hypothesis. Well, this appears to be an etching. So I look closer to make sure whether all the elements of an etching indeed are there. And either I am confirmed that, yes, it is an etching, or I'm shown something that, no, actually, it's not an etching, it's an engraving. So you follow that process. An artist, in creating an artwork, goes through the same thing. They might be uh, working on something, and they say, well, I think that for this particular area, I want a slightly yellower orange that I've got mixed up here on my palette. So they'll add you know, a little bit of yellow to it, mix it around, put it on the, and that that's their hypothesis. The test is going to be, oh yeah, that's the color they wanted. Or no, it's not exactly what they wanted. They need to add a little something else to it. So indeed artists are always experimenting. Artists are always trying new things. And it's possible that uh, that Picasso in developing his theories of cubism would have done a lot of things that he just didn't think were successful. In that case, they probably didn't survive. A good artist is one who can also edit his own work. And a good artist is one who doesn't leave the failures lying around. So in looking at the development of cubism, you get a real sense of what it was the artist was trying to depict in a totally new way. Uh, The painting I was looking at in my office that I mentioned, the portrait of Jacqueline, I later, through research, was able to find was actually a pastiche put together by taking little bits of other portraits and and putting them together to make a whole new portrait. But it just didn't work. It just didn't hold together.
0: Okay, so when something is l- a little off, it's more likely that the artist wouldn't have allowed that to get out, or he would have destroyed that if it if it didn't really uh, fit into. Their work overall and that's how that's kind of a way that you can determine that 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 wasn't just them experimenting It was just well, uh,
1: obviously, especially when you're dealing with artists. There are no uh, Hard and fast rules that always hold but uh, artists really care about Achieving what they're trying to achieve achieving their goals And if they fail then they don't want the failures around they don't want to be reminded they might hold on to something and say, well, I'm going to come back to this later and see what it is I don't like about it. But in general, artists are going to destroy or paint over, perhaps, something are, that didn't make so it. So is
0: is that something that you're aware of then? Is that, well, if that was a, a Picasso, a true Picasso, that was a a poor work of his. I mean, are you able, do, and are there any authentic pieces of of art that you think, well, that's not a very good piece? Or do you think, the masters, the ones that are really highly regarded, don't really have any bad pieces.
1: No, I think every artist has an off day. Mm -hmm. And I just wrote an email to a collector who sent me a list of his collection and photographs of his collection. And I said, beware of making a laundry list of all the artists you want to collect and then buying things by them just because it's by the artist. You're going to end up with some mediocre works. The very, very famous Thyssen Bornemitsa collection, which went from Lugano, Switzerland, and now is in its own museum in Madrid, where, of course, I visited it, has some pretty mediocre pieces. But uh, the Baron, Baron Thyssen Bornemitsa, was going down a list and he said, oh, good, here's one by that artist. I think I'll buy it. So, no, we do expect to see lesser works uh, by artists that have been released, have been signed, are in the market. but in, you know, looking back later, you say, well, that wasn't so good back then. So
0: how do you decide the difference between a lesser work of an artist and a poor imitation?
1: I really don't decide anything. The artwork tells me. As I say, <laughs> the clues are all there. Yeah, And especially if I put two pieces next to each other, I can say, well, this really looks like what he was trying to develop during that period, but this other one looks like someone not understanding exactly where he was in the process tried to do one in that style and just didn't pull it off. Uh, A good example is is Salvador Dali, who during the decade of the 1950s was developing uh, what's been called atomic mysticism. With the explosion of the atom bomb, Dolly suddenly picked up on the concept of of nuclear physics and started reading everything he could get. He was always very, very interested in in science. Um, I mentioned Jim Watson, who discovered DNA. Well, Jim Watson has provided me with images of a number of Dolly's that include the double helix before he and Crick found it. So Dolly did that sort of thing, and he was very, very fascinated by the whole concept that everything is made up of molecules and then the molecules are made up of atoms and the atoms are made up of subato- subatomic particles. And as more and more discoveries were made of subatomic particles, smaller and smaller and smaller, he was reading about this. And in his art, he started painting things made up of many, many component parts. And there's a painting that I'm intimately associated with right now, that was the culmination of that entire 10 year period. But there are probably 30 paintings during that period where he was playing with that idea of everything. Even we as people, even we as as, as, as bodies are made up of tiny little particles. So I might see something that someone else has done not understanding where Dali was in that process, but they're gonna take a figure and divide it up into lots and lots of little particles but it's not gonna quite work. It's not quite gonna be convincing to me.
0: What drew you to Dali? Why is that your focus, or he your focus?
1: You know, when people ask me that, I will sometimes uh, quote Karl Marx. Karl Marx was asked what he thought of Engels, and he said, Engels' prominence is made possible by the flatness of the terrain. I was drawn to Dali because nobody else would touch him. Nobody else would become the man for Salvador Dali. Everybody knew there were lots and lots of fakes. Nobody knew how to tell the difference. Everybody knew there were a lot of dangerous players in the market. People warned me. They said, that's dangerous. You're going to be running up against the mafia. Uh, Your life is going to be threatened. Your kids are going to be threatened. All of that turned out to be true over the years. But I was able to... Keep working, meeting anybody who could tell me anything, traveling as necessary, examining a huge number of artworks, and really developing, starting in 1980, the expertise so that by 1987, I really could tell the difference between the fakes and the real ones. And so I became the expert witness in all the federal prosecutions that were just starting up about that time and ran through about 1994. And every one of those prosecutions brought me an enormous amount of information. Some of it might be publishers' files. It would be printing plates. It would be uh, drawings used to work up a fake. Um, Just an enormous amount of... That's how you get to 57,000 prints. You do a case that's got 3,000 prints in it here. You do a case that's got 1,800 prints in it there. So um, everything I see adds to my knowledge and my sense of what I know and what I don't know. And it's always critical to know what you don't know.
0: So you focused on Dali because nobody else was kind of covering him as
1: much. Not brave enough. Initially that was, that was quite true and everyone was warning me off. And (laughs) for the first couple of years um, I would have to say that I didn't understand a lot of what I was seeing. I wasn't impressed by a lot I was seeing, but when I really got into seeing the the genuine, original, unique Dali artworks, my appreciation for his techniques grew tremendously. A big step in that was the first time that I appraised the collection of the Salvador Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida, because I put on my Optivisor, which magnified everything seven times and could get within a couple of inches of the artwork, and I really could see the genius of the man, that five little dabs of color under the magnification, if I step back, suddenly came together as a figure, and you can really see the figure and the the uh, the, the the position of the of the of the body, etc. So, the more I've seen, the more I have been impressed by the genius of Salvador Dali, which means that I have been tremendously rewarded over the years as I have seen more, learned more. I went into a private collection in Turin, Italy, a collection nobody knew existed. turned out to be the largest collection in the world of original Salvador Dali artworks. Not the finished oil paintings like those in the museum in St. Petersburg, but lots of watercolors, lots of gouache paintings, lots of ink drawings. And I walked into the apartment. I was there as the guest of the collector who finally wanted to have someone come and see their collection. It was a very, very private thing for for uh, Giuseppe Albaretto and his wife, Mara Albaretto, both doctors in Turin. And they had a very, very close association with Salvador Valley. But they finally said, well, nobody knows this exists. And when we showed a few pieces publicly, uh, the charges were made that they must be fake because nobody had seen them before. So they had me fly over to Turin. Uh, I had as my travel companions, The Baron Philippe de Noyer and the Baroness Guilaine, this absolutely delightful French couple. We became very, very close friends. They came to my wedding in Colorado. They came to see me here in Santa Fe. Um, We traveled to Europe together several times. And when we got to where the collection was, uh, we walked in and the Baron and the Baroness, knowing the collectors, were greeting and meeting and catching up and talking about family news and such. And I walked past them all into the living room and there were floor to ceiling dollies just on every wall. And I was just stood there stunned. And when Mara Alberetto, Dr. Alberetto, came in and stood next to me, she turned and she looked at me and she went back to the others and she said, he is crying. We have found our dolly expert (laughs) because the opportunity to see that collection was just overwhelming and that's happened over and over and over
0: so you when you originally got into dolly it wasn't because you were a fan of his or a big fan of his work you became a fan as you started to get more involved in looking at his stuff
1: yeah that's 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 well said because when i did my initial research no one could tell me anything nobody knew anything they could warn me off they could say well there are lots and lots of fakes but no one knows what the real ones and the fake ones are. And of course, through the years, through the decades, I have undertaken many, many, many investigations to learn things. For instance, where did thousands and thousands and thousands of blank sheets of paper with forged Dolly signatures come from that during the 1980s, the publishers used to print the fake prints? And it took me several years of running down everything I could there. I finally... Flew to Barcelona, rented a car, drove up to Figueres, went to the Salvador Dali Foundation, as I've done a few times. Spent a couple of days working with them and then went down to the little town of Cateches. And I was looking for a man named Captain John Peter Moore. Captain Moore was the second of three uh, secretaries that Dali had through the years. He never paid them a single penny. All three became multimillionaires because they were the gatekeepers to Dali. Well, Moore, after he left Dali's service after 20 years, had set up his own museum in Cadaques, a beautiful little Mediterranean town, the Perot Moore Museum. Um, Perot was his wife's maiden name. And I looked at the collection. He wasn't there. He'd gone out for his midday meal. He was out uh, having his comida somewhere in a restaurant. I went looking for him, wandering the beautiful little narrow streets found him sitting on the wall after his lunch, uh, sitting in the sun. And I introduced myself and he said, I know who you are. And I said, I'd like to ask you a few questions. And he sort of grunted. So I sat down on the wall next to him and I said, in my work, I have seen thousands and thousands of Dali prints with forged signatures on them. And that signature was absolutely the same on every one of them. And I don't trust that because I don't think anybody signs their name the same way over and over and over. And Georgia Hannah, my friend, who is the question documents examiner for the LA County DA's office, and I worked on a couple of cases together, and she absolutely confirmed that. And we looked at a lot of the evidence that is true, that the forgers practice over and over and over until they think they've got it right, and then the signature never varies. But they don't sign their own name the same way every time. So I said to Captain Moore, and by the way, he said he was captain because he had been a captain in MI6, the British Secret Service. Well, the British Secret Service doesn't have captains, but that's okay. Everybody in the art world is playing some role, including the appraisers. Mm -hmm. And so I said to him, I've seen those thousands and thousands of of, uh, prints. I've also seen several thousand blank sheets of paper mostly Archer's paper and BFK Reeves paper with exactly the same signature on it. And then there's your book, the 678 true signatures of Salvador Dali. And I think that book has got four signatures in it too. And I think you did all of those. He turned very slowly and looked at me and he said, you are not so smart. My wife Catherine did some. So I Uh finally had investigated and found the answers to where all those signatures that the dealers always said, oh, he's, Dolly signed these before he became a recluse in 1980. He signed this paper. And fortunately, uh, working with the paper manufacturer, Arja Marie, it's a paper mill south of Paris, I also found out that I could date the watermark of the paper. So I could prove to a jury that the paper had been manufactured three or four years after Salvador Dali stopped signing prints and stopped signing paper for prints and was physically incapable of signing his name.
0: So do you know Dali's family or do you, I mean, do you, are you friends with them?
1: Dali had no family. Uh He had a sister, Ana Maria. I own a watercolor by Ana Maria Uh, She died just a couple of months after Dali did. They were estranged all their adult lives. Uh, He was estranged from his father and his mother at quite an early age. And uh, Dali and his wife, Gala, never had children together. Hmm. And as a matter of fact, I am totally convinced that they never consummated their marriage. Really? So a couple of years ago, when uh, a lawsuit was filed against Salvador Dali by a woman who said that she was his love child, because her mother, as a maid, had been in Kata case one summer when the young Salvador Dali was there, and they had conceived her. I knew it was absolutely ridiculous that, of course, was finally put to rest when a court uh ordered that the body of Salvador Dali should be exhumed from his uh his grave under the uh the stage of his museum in Figueres. In fact, I was standing on the stone right over him on the day that that happened. And they did a DNA test and there was no truth to the paternity suit at all. And that day at the foundation, we had asked the foundation people, well, if you do that tonight, do you think you're going to find any evidence that... And they all said, oh, no, no, no way. Because we just knew that was not part of his lifestyle.
0: Okay, interesting, huh? So he, wasn't, uh, he didn't have relationships with
1: women? He had a lot of relationships with women, and most of them were pretty strange. He was more of a voyeur than he was a lover. Uh, as a young man, of course, he was very, very known, to along with uh, Federico Garcia-Loya, uh, uh, to, you know, to be uh, some of the gayest blades on the beach at Rosas. Mm. And uh, he had other boyfriends and, and was pretty flamboyant about it. But uh, no, he had one of the problems with his relationship with women is that when he was six years old, his father, who was a notary in Figueres, had opened up a big book of uh, venereal diseases on the piano. And every day he turned a few pages to another horrifying uh, illustration. And young Dolly, who was pretty neurotic at six years of age would creep into the room and with the uh, psychological approach retreat conflict, uh, go over and look at the picture and then run away screaming. So he saw these photographs about uh, horrible things that could happen to female and male genitalia. And that stuck with him.
0: Are you one of the top experts on Dali in the world?
1: I believe I am the top expert. There Mm -hmm. are a couple of other people who claim to be and I can document that they are crooks. One of them, who is actually used by Sotheby's and Christie's as their Dali expert, has testified under oath in court that, yeah, he would change his opinion for payment of a 1,000 euros. And uh, the couple of others who claim to be quite apart from uh, not coming anywhere close to the experience that I have and having seen what I've seen and having the, uh, the professional uh, parameters that I pursue, um, have also been engaged in very, very bad activity. His third secretary, Robert Descharnes, Robert Descharnes, is the one who kept Dali prisoner for nine years and vastly over-medicated him. And during that time, stole between 12, nine and $12 million from his estate. So that when Dolly died, there was no liquidity in the estate. And the state of Spain, the country of Spain, took over everything. The museum, Dolly's house, the castle of ball, And they've been running it as a cash cow tourist attraction ever since. But I think if you st- st- if you steal 9 to $12 million from your employer, you really should not be recognized as the expert.
0: Now, it seems like your forte is modern Artists, right, or more contemporary artists. Well, there are num- a dollar-
1: number of things that I, I have developed some expertise in, but that's probably my greatest uh, reputation. Yeah.
0: Are you able to transfer your the skill set that you've developed over the years with regards to contemporary art to older works, Renaissance paintings, for example, or whatever? You know, I mean, are you able to, or would you not be able to f- figure out fakes and things like that with regards to older work?
1: Well, I don't know how to quantify what percentage I might be able to, uh, with real sincerity, give an opinion on. But of course, everything I know about art is transferable to all other art. And recently I saw a painting that uh, was done in uh, the, oh, probably around 1650. And it just didn't look right. And when I examined it, I, I knew the answer. And I explained to my client. And then I confirmed by calling the dealer she'd bought it from, who denied for quite a long time, that it had at some point fairly recently been overcleaned, and it probably had linoxin on it. Linoxin is, uh, is polymerized linseed oil, and linseed oil has frequently been used as a varnish on paintings. The problem is that over time, the uh, the molecule absorbs an extra atom of oxygen from the air, and becomes a polymer it becomes a plastic it turns yellow and then darker brown over time and the only way to remove that linoxin layer to get down to the paint and brighten up the painting again is to use uh, a solvent which is also the solvent for the oil paint because the linseed oil is the medium for the oil and if you do that, and as a as a conservator, I have done it many, many times. You have to be extremely careful, because you can work your way down through the lenoxin layer, and then immediately be on top of the original paint, and that will come off too if you don't know exactly what you're doing. Well, I looked at this painting, and I said, someone has overcleaned it. They've taken off a lot of paint, all the the the, the background, the shadows, et cetera, in the forest here, and they have repainted it with what. I identified as mummy brown. Now, believe me, the art world is a fascinating place because mummy brown was a very, very popular paint in the Victorian era, and it was actually created by grinding up Egyptian mummies and uh, putting the powder into linseed oil or some other uh, medium like that and painting the brown paint onto the... But it's very, very... um, it has a particular look. It's very, very flat. So I thought, well, someone's removed a whole lot of the background paint here, which would have been thinner than the trees and such in the foreground, and has filled in with mummy brown, and that's what I'm seeing. So the art detective work can lead into fascinating places.
0: When you describe these when you describe these stories of you traveling to different places and meeting different people and looking for different clues and all these things, you know, it sounds like, it sounds like a detective. I mean, as you have described yourself as a detective, I do like um, a detective investigating a murder scene or something like that. Right. So similar to detectives sometimes being, in situations that might be kind of dangerous has any of your detective work doing art detective work led you into situations where you were threatened or you know you you felt like you were in danger in any kind of way
1: well as i said i was warned off in the very beginning because of the dangers uh my book artful dodgers fraud and foolishness in the art market which i'm proud to say has gotten four awards uh tells some of those stories I tell the story about when my daughter went to New York with me and met the mafia. I tell she was 11 at the time. I tell the story about when my son went to Kansas City with me and met the drug guys and I got paid with drug money. And I guess the um there was always that threat. Every case I got involved in I would ask the prosecutors and the, uh, the detectives, the uh, investigators, whether they were FBI or coastal inspectors or whoever it was, what's the level of danger here? And they would say all the way from, oh, don't worry about that, Bernard, to the uh, district attorney's investigator who came to my hotel room. Uh, when I let him in, he rushed across the room and closed the curtains. And I said, gosh, you're, you're pretty uptight pulled the curtain back, pointed at the building across the road, and he said, that's where they're gonna get you from, Bernard. Because in all of those cases, if I had disappeared, there wouldn't have been a case. There wouldn't have been anybody who could have testified the way I was planning to testify. And when I was doing the Center Art Gallery uh, case in Hawaii, and that was a chain of galleries that had sold an estimated $125 million worth of fake prints uh during a break in the uh, federal court trial, I went to the men's room and one of the defendants came in and stood next to me and started talking about my daughter's carpool back in Colorado Springs. Mm. That was a pretty clear threat.
0: Sure. Yeah. Wow. I, using your um, expertise uh, as far as attention to detail goes, have you ever been employed by the police to sort of investigate crime scenes that were not art related?
1: Not crime scene so much as the evidence that they seized at a crime scene. So I have not, not time- art related
0: though. Yeah.
1: Well, I've many times been called to something like a boiler room where they were selling art over the telephone. And when they busted the boiler room, they had announced to all the people who were on the telephones there, stand up, hang up the phone, do not give an explanation, just hang up the phone, step away from your desk. And then when I got there, um, Everything would be absolutely in place. Uh, at a desk might be a half-eaten donut and half a cup of coffee. And in the side room were lines of cocaine lined up because that's where the salesman would go and get the energy to, to keep their you know their, their, their high-energy sales pitches going. So I certainly have been in crime scenes. Uh, but my job was really to look for evidence like um, how the prints had been produced, what was in storage, what the inventory was, and then I would also look at the, uh, the scripts the salesman had that they would use in making the calls. So if someone said, well, this sounds pretty interesting, but I guess I'm gonna to have to ask my husband, they would then have three answers that they could give reading from the script. So I've seen a lot of evidence and I've seen a lot of that kind of stuff, but mine has been a slightly different job from the other investigators.
0: How did you initially get into this? Did, were you, uh, did you study art history in school or, or what?
1: Well, I grew up in a family of museum administrators and professional artists. And from the age of 14, I started traveling with my father, who was an international businessman. And so I was in Europe uh, three, four, five times a year for a couple of weeks each time from the age of 14 right up until my, my, into my graduate work. And my father and I would have breakfast at a hotel, kind of hotels I never could afford later. (laughs) And he would say, "Okay, I'm going to be at the factory all day, or I'm going to be at the offices all day," because he was really one of those who was out there inventing the uh, international corporations. And he'd say, "I'll be back here at eleven o'clock. They're doing a dinner dance tonight. It'd be nice if you were here." And he would leave, and Rome would be mine or Paris, or Geneva, or Beirut, or wherever I was, I was totally and completely free to wander. And I thought that when you went overseas and you traveled, you were supposed to go to museums. I thought you were supposed to go to cathedrals. So I always did those things. But I also learned to follow my ears and follow my nose. And for instance, I might be around the back of the Duomo in Firenze in Florence, and I would smell turpentine. So I would follow that smell through an archway into a courtyard, up some steps and find myself in a restoration studio or a gold leafing studio, or I would hear a, a chisel on a hammer and I'd be in a, in a stone sculpting studio. And I just walk into all those places and people were wonderful. Here was a, a you know, a, a bright, curious kid, that wanted to know what was going on. And they shared everything with me. They showed me all kinds of things. I mean, they they showed me how to do gold leafing. They showed me the problem they were having with getting just exactly the what right green, this ambergris green that they wanted. So I learned a tremendous amount that way. But um, then I ran an art gallery for uh, for eight years, and during that time I was developing my skills as an appraiser. But I also was learning and doing a very wide range of of um, painting conservation, and I learned a tremendous amount from the painting conservation and the chemistry involved there. But I also put myself through a nine-year course of doing every medium. I carved all the different kinds of stones. I took a a, a sabbatical and worked in a bronze foundry, so I'd learned everything about bronzes. And so I I don't think any other appraiser has ever done all the mediums, and that's why they mostly are a big disappointment. They just don't know what they're identifying. They don't know what they're dealing with. So I quite specifically have trained myself and continue to at this. I mean, I'm 76 years of age, and every now and then I'll say, hmm, there's something I don't know or I'm not sure about, so I go and find it out. So it's an ongoing process, but it was fun in the early years because I'd say, gosh, I'm so much better than I was a couple years ago, but think how good I'll be five years from now.
0: Well, how did you start to do these art detective jobs and start to, it just, it just came with the territory of appraising and I guess, right. Of deciding. Well, I was
1: hired to run an art gallery, the the highest quality gallery in Colorado and the highest quality frame shop had the restoration service, did uh, monthly, uh, monthly shows for artists. I, so I spent a lot of time in artist studios and Just a few months after starting that, I was asked to do the appraisal of an estate of an artist. I didn't know how to do an appraisal, so I went and I looked at the artworks and I took notes on absolutely everything I could identify. I photographed the works. I went away and I did the research. Uh, I learned about the artist's uh, career and I looked at their market and I looked at recent sales and evidence of sales and put together what I thought was a pretty good appraisal report. Turned out it was a good appraisal report, but I was rather fascinated because that's all the things I've been doing in graduate school. That's what I was doing as a Ph.D. student, dealing with artworks, doing research. I thought there's opportunities here to to publish, to write. And I ended up as an analytical art columnist in a whole series of art magazines. Um, I published over 100 articles. I'm working on my second book now. Uh, And I thought there are opportunities for public speaking. And I've done over 100 lectures, so that was true. Uh, I taught valuation law at five universities. So uh, I I was able to use this core um, profession to do lots and lots of other things. And every single one of them would lead to something else. If I did a court case, I might have an article to publish. Or I might have something that I could include in my next lecture. So Uh, it's it's been a wonderful career.
0: Do you um do you love art, or are you more do you love more the I don't know the the work behind you know examining it You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I, I, I can't parse it out. I can say I've had more fun than anybody else I know. I have such a tremendously rewarding career in so many ways. One of the rewards is just the clients I deal with. Uh, I do telephone consultations every day on Dolly Prints, and just those conversations alone are very, very rewarding. They're good opportunities to do a lot of uh, a lot of teaching, a lot of education. But I I love uh, picking apart an out, artwork, seeing how something was done, the the uh, the skill of the artist, and sometimes something was tried which fails. And with my painting conservation uh, experience, I will see those failures. I'll know what's wrong here, but. I really, really make sure that I take the time to really look at the art because that's where the rewards are. And art dealers, for instance, just don't look at art. I, I, I'm amazed. They really don't. I'm constantly pointing out things to them. One dealer had me come to look at a couple of etchings he would just bought, and they were by Matisse. Well, I pointed out to him that one of them had been printed from a plate that Matisse had, after the legitimate edition was printed, had carved his initials in along with the date, which printed backwards in the print. And he hadn't noticed that those weird little lines in the, in, the, in the sky of the image were actually a cancellation of the plate so that legitimate prints could not be made from it ever again. And the second piece I pointed out to him that the pencil signature of Matisse was misspelled. Because I've learned to look, and they don't. Mm. It's is there all any, rewarding.
0: Is there any value to fakes? Um, and have any? Are there any known, well-known fake artists or fa- uh, fakers? And is there? Do, do those become works of art in their own right? You know.
1: Well, the. The, the official legal answer is no, there is no value because you cannot sell an artwork that doesn't have good title. And if it's a fake, it doesn't have a good title. <laughs> At the same time, if you brought a piece to me and I said, I am so sorry, but this is not real. And you said, well, I've got a friend who wants to buy it. I would say, as long as you tell the friend what it really is, you guys can certainly, you know, hit upon a value. And, but it, there has to be full revelation there. Sure. Um, But I guess what I mean is, is, yeah, is
0: there is there value to a piece that everybody knows is fake? But it's uh, there's something about the way that the fake was made that makes it unique and interesting to people that they kind of appreciate it in its own way.
1: Uh, Well, that's you're asking a lot of really good questions. I'm impressed. Um, I have steered fakes. To, uh, to study collections uh, at art schools, universities, museums, where along with my notes about everything is wrong with the piece and how I knew it was wrong, uh, students can study it and see what has been done wrong. So there's always an opportunity to learn from a fake just as there is to learn from a genuine work. Um, there's some value there. If you were doing that and you were making a charitable donation to the Chicago Art Institute, I could uh I could write an essay that would say there is non-monetary value to what this is what this is and how it's being donated but officially I couldn't put a dollar value on it because it should not trade hands uh in the regular market
0: and in other words the there you don't own any fakes and proudly you know you don't have any fakes hung up on your wall that's actually a uh that's a fake dolly, but I like it because it has this weird, you know, aspect to it or something like that. You know, there, you're, you don't, you don't have that kind of appreciation for fakes where you would actually celebrate them in some kind of way.
1: Well, I actually own lots of fakes. Okay. I've never bought one. Yeah, I've okay. never bought a dolly of any kind. Yeah. I've never sold a dolly. I've never brokered a dolly. That makes me a third person independent professional and that's why people want my name on a report that translates into credibility. Hmm. And in fact, I was just talking a couple of days ago. I'm very pleased with uh, one of the top dealers in the country. There was a, we were having a conference call and during the call, he said, well, if Bernard says it, then I absolutely know I can count on it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you get that kind of credibility by always playing it straight and not playing various sides of the street. But I have a large collection of Dali prints, some of them totally authentic, and some of them fakes, and they've all been gifts. Sometimes I'll say to someone, well, this is a fake, and they'll say, well, I don't want it, then why don't you keep it? Other times, like with the albreto collection in Turin, Italy that I mentioned, uh, they gave me a selection of their totally legitimate prints signed by Salvador Dali as a way of saying thank you, but also so I would have that material for lecturing and, uh, and writing about. So, um, I have probably half a dozen legitimate dolly prints on the wall in my house, but I have only one fake and it's just because of the fun of finding out it's a fake. But to answer your first question, yes, um, there are some very famous forgers. Hmm. A number of them have written books. A number of books have been written about them. I've got a big library of such books, um, I generally meet them across a deposition table or in court, not always because I do a lot of undercover work. So some of them I have met by going to their gallery. Uh, that's where my son was especially good as in an under- undercover job. You know, I mean, I look more like just a dad looking through a gallery. If my son comes up to me and says, Dad, can we leave now? Come on, Dad. Meanwhile, he was doing his own investigations and always had seen a lot of things that were important for me to know about. But um, I'm not sure uh, what question I I just got away from, but I I can give you the names of some forgers in this country. For instance, Gene Tetro, Eugene Tetro, uh, drove around Los Angeles in one of two uh, red Ferraris for several years. And the police said, we know he's doing drugs. We know he's selling drugs. He doesn't have any obvious source of income. And we've been following him. We've been staking him out. We've been looking at his companions. But we just can't nail him. So when the Federal Trade Commission came in and nailed him for doing fake art, all the cops said, oh, that's what he was doing. And it turns out he was supplying a lot of the dealers that were selling fakes. And there are dealers like that. And there's a, a guy, John Myatt, in England who did a wide range of fakes. And uh, he finally got found out, and a book was written about him. Uh, the most famous of all, of course, was Hans von Meegeren, who did uh, fake Vermeer paintings and then sold them to uh, Hermann Goering for his private collection. And after the war was arrested for uh, consorting with the Nazis. And he said, no, I sold them fakes. I protected our patrimony here in Holland by selling them fakes. And he proved that by painting a fake in his jail cell. Oh. So there are lots of great stories, and we know True. who a lot of them are.
2: Okay, the one that was sold to the Getty in the 80s, I think you were talking about the beginning of the conversation, the one that was mentioned in the book Blink. Uh, do you think that you could have – well, have you seen it, and do you know where that is now? Because didn't they pay $10 million for that – was it a sculpture or something?
1: Yeah, you're talking about a Kuros which is supposed yes. to be Ionic Greek sculpture. Beautiful thing. Um, when I saw it, I had the same response that a couple of other experts have had, which is it just looks too fresh. It really doesn't look like it's got the age that it should. Of course, you can clean an artwork. You can even clean a marble. But if you clean a marble, marble is very, very porous. And uh, it stains easily. And to clean it that much would mean you probably were taking off a couple of millimeters of the surface. So my concern was that another thing that happens is that fakers and forgers um, cannot help to some degree involving uh, the aesthetic of their time. So I have seen Renaissance paintings that the first clue to me was, well, it's kind of cutesy, isn't it? It looks like a 19th century you know a uh, female rather than a, a a 15th century female so there are those kinds of clues the kuros i called yes but i would not say i'm the expert who can really prove this
2: how often is it that you can tell the canvas is fake or the the wear and tear versus the art itself
1: or the those are all important parts of the whole process um, I was doing an artist's estate one time in Taos, and one of the big artists in Taos was a guy named Leon Gaspard, who came from Russia. His paintings are selling for very high prices. And in the collection of this other artist, I came across a really nice Leon Gaspard. Typical scene of the, uh, the Dalai Lama fleeing through the snows to, uh, to India, fleeing Tibet. Typical subject for Leon Gaspard. And I, it was signed Gaspard. And I looked at it and I said, wow, this is a great Gaspard. And then I turned it over, and it was on Grumbacher stretcher bars, and it was cotton canvas. And I said, oh, no, this is, not, this is not a Gaspard. This is someone else's idea of a Gaspard. And because of the talent of the artist whose estate I was doing, I said, I'll bet he did this. I'll bet Wolfie did this. I can see him sitting around the Adobe bar in Taos with a bunch of other artists and saying, oh, hell, that Gaspard wasn't so great. I could do one of those and then doing it. And later while working on the estate, I came across the oil sketches on paper that he had used to work up the whole idea of the painting and put together the composition and such. So I had the proof that indeed he had done the fake, but he made sure that he used stretcher bars and canvas so that anybody else would know it was not done by Leon Gaspard. He didn't write fake across the back, but as far as I was concerned, he'd written fake across the back. Hmm.
0: Have you ever seen F for Fake? Pardon me? Have you ever seen the movie F for Fake?
1: That's very interesting because that's about Elmir de It's based on the Clifford Irving book, Fake, Clifford Irving, of course, was nailed for writing a fake biography of Howard Hughes. And the movie was made by Orson Welles. That's right. Orson Welles was my second cousin. Oh, really? And when he was when he was making that movie, he said, oh, everything about this movie is fake. The guy who wrote the book is fake. The artist does fakes. I know quite, about El, quite a lot about Elmir de Jore. And one of my associates is Elmer's Mir's uh, former companion of many, many years. So I have seen the movie and I've read the book. I've got a couple of copies of it. Um, it's fun, it's pretty fascinating.
0: Uh huh. You like that movie?
1: I like the movie, but I mean, it's disappointing too. Uh, oh, okay. and, and Orson didn't like it. Or Orson oh, didn't really? think it was a real success.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I asked because um, I wondered if you liked it. Uh, particularly because it's sort of related to what you deal with.
1: Yeah. Well, anything like that is of interest to me because I always learn something.
2: You ever been alone in a room looking at a piece of art? Maybe you've been checking it out for like days and days and maybe you're even a little bit tired or something and you, just, you think that it's alive or haunted, the piece of artwork?
1: I don't know that I would put it in those terms, alive or haunted. But I absolutely have gotten some very, very strong messages from artworks that show that the artwork is highly successful because the artist has been able to put into his painting what he was feeling, what he was trying to depict. Um, there's one artist, for instance, who I, when I met her, I said, oh, I've appraised a bunch of your paintings and I'm really glad to have the chance to ask you about them because they're mostly red and black. They're turbulent, and I feel very, very uncomfortable every time I'm doing one of your, your paintings. It feels to me like there, there, there's fright there. There's maybe even terror. There's a lot of pain, and I get that from the paintings themselves. And she said, you're the first person who's ever said that to me. I have, throughout my life, been subject to absolutely crippling headaches And when I get a migraine, it can go on for days and days and days, and I can't do anything else. And the only way I can deal with it is not medication or anything else. I have to paint my way out of that headache. And every one of those paintings is my painting my way out of this terrible, terrible place. And you have picked that up from the painting.
0: Have you ever decoded secret messages in paintings or in in any, any art actually?
1: oh, I've been shown hundreds and hundreds of them. (laughs) Look at the grass down here. See the way the grass is? I'm sure it spells out letters and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, There is a scholar uh, named uh, Dr. Chris Brown who has made a secondary career out of writing books about things like that, about Leonardo's secret messages, real Dan Brown kind of approach to that. Mm -hmm. Um, I have not. And Mm -hmm. I've never been shown one that I really thought was credible. Um, it's kind of like the, uh, the the head of the archives at the Smithsonian Institution saying, we have 1,800 treasure maps here in the Smithsonian, and not a single one has ever led to treasure.
0: What was your number one proudest discovery um, in the art world that, and maybe is was the most, uh, maybe one of the biggest contributions to information about art?
1: Something I'm working on right now that I can't talk a whole lot about, but it's a really, really major Salvador Dali painting. It's a masterwork, and masterwork—the definition for Dali—is that it is over five feet in one dimension, so it's a big painting. And he worked on it for over a year. And this one has been gone for 50 years. The Fundacio Gala Salvador Dali in Figueres, the Dali Foundation, has got a black and white photograph of this artwork in their catalog raisonné, but they don't know the dimensions, they don't know the medium, they don't know where it is. So this is a pretty fabulous discovery and it's going to be revealed to the world pretty soon now, but this is a a dolly of a stature that has not been available in the market for many, many decades and arguably never will be again. So that's pretty thrilling. And the other one I would say is a Jackson Pollock, which was poo-pooed, was the subject of a movie titled Who the Hell is Jackson Pollock? And when I finally got to take a look at this, I not only authenticated it as a true Jackson Pollock, but I figured out exactly where it fit into his work and his career. And that is going to be a movie. We're working oh. on that now. And I'm proud to say that I've been cast to play The Appraiser. Very
0: good. Yeah. Nice. Uh,
2: oh, it, my brother told me in high school, he, he was like, heard that Salvador Dali remembers being born. Do you know anything about this?
1: I don't believe that at all. That's the kind of thing that Dali said. Dali said a lot of things to confuse people. And he also said, it's uh, confusion that is the best. And if you asked Dali questions, you were probably likely to get a made up answer just because he enjoyed the confusion. Dolly was born into a family that something like 18 months earlier had lost an earlier, an older child who was named Salvador. And all the time he was growing up in his younger years, he was sort of not who he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be the older brother who had not survived. So he had a real identity crisis, and he really talked a lot about his early life and the, and the angst, and then finally when he read and then met Sigmund Freud, he went a lot into uh, past life stuff, and uh, I, I don't think that you can say that um, he literally could remember being born, but I think he had a concept of probably what it was like.
0: Um, aside from your book, is there anything else that uh, you'd like people to know about? Well, I'm
1: having a lot of fun right now. Uh, I like everybody, and staying out of public. I live in a private inholding within a closed to the public national park. I'm in, in a canyon outside of Santa Fe. I am recognized as the uh, caretaker for the park, so I hike it every day with my dog. So I've got absolutely ideal circumstances, except that my lady love is coming back from South Florida, and when she comes. I want her to be alone here at the house for two weeks. So I'm going off to my wildlife preserve in Colorado at 9,200 feet. And that is absolutely ideal because I'm writing a book, another book. And to have two weeks alone on the west side of Pikes Peak is going to be a huge gift. That book is titled The Dolly Dossiers, Investigations into Endless Art Enigmas. And it's about these investigations I've done throughout my career that has revealed information like where did those thousands of flat, of fake signatures come from?
0: Well, look, thanks very much, uh, Bernard, uh, for, uh, for sharing all this information and um, answering our questions.
2: Yeah, thanks, Bernard. That was great. Oh, it was my sure. pleasure
1: well, to speak to both of you again. And good questions. Well oh, done. Thanks. Oh, thanks. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> good day um, to you both. Be safe and be well.
0: Our guest has been Bernard Uel. His book is Artful Dodgers, Fraud and Foolishness in the Art Market. Dolly owners can also seek assistance at www.bernarduel.com. That's B-E-R-N-A-R-D-E-W-E-L-L. If you like this show, you can go to iTunes and you can rate and review it. You can listen to the show on iTunes. You can also listen on SoundCloud, uh, or you can also go to allthingscomedy.com. Thank you to Donnie Devanian for being here, as usual. My name is Brent Weinbach. The name of the program is Pointed Questions. Thank you for listening.